In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. I'm Andrew Gold, a fallen BBC journalist interviewing the heretics and rebels brave enough to speak out against mainstream narratives. Here's Coleman Hughes, John Ronson, and the Trigonometry podcast guys bringing controversy to the fore. How do you feel if a person of a different race moved in next door? I spent a while with a politically correct faction of the Ku Klux Klan. The system punishes people for wrong think. It's heartbreaking. Here's My Unorthodox Life Netflix star Julia Hart on getting out of a Hasidic Jewish cult. Why can't I be okay with being silent and subservient? Everyone else is. And biologist Richard Dawkins on trans activism. It's perfectly legitimate to say, I'm a man, but I feel feminine. But to then say, therefore I am a woman, is just a betrayal of language. Now it's your turn. Rebel against the mainstream and find a home in this sensible alternative space by subscribing to Heretics Podcast. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, an author, lecturer, and paranormal investigator describes his encounters with demons and unclean spirits. We do have malevolent beings who will pose as ancestors or deceased loved ones in order to gain consent from their victims. And I, I know that everybody in the field has seen that in hauntology. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the star chamber. $20 a month is the whistleblower tier, and a donation of just $10 per month makes you a truth seeker. Star Chamber and Whistleblower members can participate in an exclusive monthly online chat or video conference with me. And all donors are entered into a monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. 
Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday. Demonologist Nathaniel Gillis is standing by. Just a reminder, I'll be a guest on Coast to Coast AM tomorrow night. That's Thursday, May 14th at 11.30 p.m. Pacific. That's 2.30 a.m. Friday morning on the 15th. This is a special edition of Coast. George Norrie is interviewing all the fill-in hosts. Myself, Ian Punnett, George Knapp, Lisa Garr, Jimmy Church, and Connie Willis. Go to coasttocoastam.com for more information. After being in the deliverance ministry for 15 years, Nathaniel Gillis felt called to bring his gifts and research to a more secular venue. The experience he's had as a child while living in a haunted house inspired him to research the fields of demonology and the paranormal. It's his belief that demonology is not the study of new life, but the study of old life in a new way. Nathaniel Gillis, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Doing good, sir. Thank you so much for having me. I am very humbled and honored to be with you. I'm a Christian, Orthodox Christian. I believe in the Bible. I believe in angels. I believe in an unseen world. I certainly believe in demons. What do you mean by demons? Well, my description of a demon is far less horns and hooves, not so much a fallen angel. Um, Not that I didn't have that description earlier in my uh, tradition of Christianity, because I come from the Christian tradition as well. Uh, But in my research, I was compelled to dive deeper into the literature, into biblical antiquity. And so that had an effect on my perception of the demonic. And so if you would have asked me 15 years ago, I would have said a fallen angel or at the very least the progeny of one. But I cannot help myself in my research when I say, you know, it, it has to fall apart. And so now my position on it is that they are a demon is, rather, a, an evil, malevolent, disincarnate spirit. And, and where do they come from, or, or how are they created? Well, I, being a disincarnate spirit, there are two schools of thought in demonology. There are people who believe that demons are the progeny of the watchers in Genesis 6, essentially the giants who, after they perished, Uh, From their own mortality, their spirits left their bodies, and now they are, quote-unquote, demons. Uh, Now, that's one position. My position is just actually simpler, (laughs) to be honest. And that is essentially it's afterlife phenomenon. When someone who is an evil person, when they they die, they become, quote-unquote, a demon. And that's the limitation, the linguistic limitation that, that we have to deal with in terms of what we're describing. Um, so that's, that's what really has placed me in a very odd position concerning demonology. And, uh, that's really, that's where I'm at. So let's go back to the beginning in your, uh, introduction to this field, this area, I guess, started in your childhood home, which was haunted quote, end quote. Tell me about your experiences growing up in that house. Well, I was eight years old 
and we, my parents had purchased a home in Dayton, Ohio. And the very first time, it was really the very first paranormal experience I ever had. But before purchasing the home, they went through an open house. They held me by the hand, took me into this room. And they said, this room is going to be your room once we purchase the house. And I remember when I first walked into that room, I remember smelling the stench of now what I would call decomposing or rotting organic matter, sulfur, really. And uh, after that, I I'd looked underneath the bed that was in the room and I saw a, a little girl. She had to have been about five or six years old. And she was draped in a white linen dress. It was very antiquated and old, a beautiful little girl. And I thought that was normal. <laughs> I thought at the time that the family that actually lived in the house had children and that somehow that little girl had uh, hidden from us or, you know, I, I didn't really know what to think of it. But that at the time was my only explanation. And so I remember driving home with my parents and asking them about the little girl that I saw and uh, with with no consideration in terms of me and my my experience. They just said, well, listen, I, I know you think you saw her. They said, but this home was formerly owned by an elderly couple and they had uh, their, you know, their children were older and that there was nobody in the house. And so that to do that to a nine year old or an eight year old, rather, it's it's kind of confusing. <laughs> you know, I know what I saw. And I know what I smelled. Where do I put that in terms of my worldview? Uh, but that's that moved on and, and manifested in different ways. Once we actually moved into the home, uh, that pervasive stench that I previ previously experienced, it morphed into something far more sinister than I could have ever imagined. Shadow people, shadow figures. Um, the stench was always there. I, I uh, would always have nightmares of someone committing suicide. And uh, it was just, it was a pretty crazy house to live in, and thankfully I survived it. Well, how, how did you survive it? Well, it all came down to a head one evening, because I, I had failed a grade in school. It got to a point where I could not sleep at night at all. I would turn my lights on, I would play video games, and there was always a presence in the room. And uh, the only thing I can say to people is that when I when that presence entered into my room, it made me feel like I was non-existent, like I was the smallest piece of matter in the universe. And it was terrifying. And there were times when I would wake up at, at nighttime and I would see a black, ominous cloud just hovering in the corner of the room. And um, I would just I had no other choice. I would just drag my mattress into my parents room at night when they were asleep and hope that I didn't wake them up. But um, there was one night when I couldn't take it anymore. I, I hadn't slept in a while. I was failing grades. I would stay up all night and then pass out and sleep at school. And I just I didn't know, know what else to do. Finally, I just went to the bath, went into the bathroom, crawled up in the corner of the bathroom, shut the door and cried. And I kept crying and I just said, you know what, God, I said, I don't know what this is. I don't know why it's attached to me and I don't know why it's around me. I said, but I can't do this anymore. I can't talk to anybody about it. I can't, you know, especially at school, even in church, sadly enough. And so I, I prayed and I said, God, just take it away. When I said that, there was a second presence that entered into that room, the bathroom. And 
It was a spirit. It was, a, I believe today, that was an angel. And it took that entity from my presence. And since then, it has been nothing short of a calling for me personally, uh, not only to displace such malevolent presences in the lives of others, but to, to even more to understand what it was that I encountered. So the idea of a haunting, and I put that in air quotes when, we, when I mentioned it earlier, because people often associate haunting or paranormal activity with the spirit of a loved one who's passed on. Sometimes we, we, we call them familiars because uh, I certainly believe that the experience is real. The question is, what are people actually experiencing? And so uh, are we talking about a deception when people believe that they are seeing the, the ghost of a, of a dearly departed loved one? Are these, in fact, all demonic no, I don't think they are. I think that there are legitimate cases where you have a family member coming back to their loved ones. That's irrefutable. However, I do believe that on the other side of the coin, we do have malevolent beings who will pose as ancestors or deceased loved ones in order to gain consent from their victims. And I, I know that everybody in the field has seen that in hauntology. And so it's a two-sided coin. There, there are entities out there that do return, and there are loved ones, you know. A lot of them will have uh, just visitations where they'll say things, kind words, or, you know, things like, I love you, I miss you, just encouragement, or even to help people heal after their passing. But that's not to say, and I, I've seen this in my own cases, that we've had entities that show up as Aunt Edna, you know, and that's, that's the more sinister area of my work and research that is, uh, it's quite chilling. So let me go back to your house for a minute and that little girl under the bed, five or six years old, wearing a white linen dress. Was that a familiar? Who, who was she? What was she? I don't, I don't know, to be honest with you. I really don't know. I know that during my research, I haven't found that there was, uh, that, that there was a little girl that died there. Um, but I, I know that when I was experiencing what I was experiencing, even as a young, as a young man at the age of eight or nine years old, I did not interpret what I was experiencing purely um, as a haunting. It was at that time, even at that age, I considered what I was experiencing to be a form of language and that there was a presence in the room. However, it wasn't strictly demonic. It was actually a form of language and communication. And as always with the form of language that in linguistics, rather, that, that there are some languages that are in their infancy, and they have to be understood for what they are and evolved into. And so that's what's really changed my life and my research. But I don't know if that was the case. You know, I just, I just know that there was a little girl that I saw, and that's the only time I saw her. You know what I mean? Uh, but other than that, I, I think it's a language. Hauntology is a language, either way, either way we look at it, in my mind. Now, when you were growing up in that home, was there any, at any point, did you feel that you were being oppressed or even possessed? Not really possessed. Oppressed, absolutely. And that's, it has a Catholic tone to it. <laughs> oppressed and then possessed. But there was an attachment and it, it would follow me from house to house. And um, even after it left, in that particular house that I experienced it, it would follow me 
later on in my adulthood at times, you know, it would come back and I would know what I was feeling and it had no more authority over me, which was a beautiful moment of growth in me. But, um, yeah, it, it wasn't, it was an attachment of emotions. It would, it would look for consent in me at that time. I was dealing with a lot of low self-esteem. And so what it would do is it would send thoughts and this is really added to my own research and helping people. But it would send thoughts and, and really ask me if I agreed with them. And once I agreed with them, uh, that's when it would just really come down really heavy, truly heavy. But that's and after that, growing out of that experience and growing into my own research, it really opened my mind to the act of possession and how much consent can play into this phenomenon. And so what kind of thoughts were they sending you? They were looking for consent about what? Yes, sir. Well, at the time, like I said, I was dealing with low self-esteem. So if anything in that day that, that affected me, it would, it would look deeply into my soul and every void and every insecurity, every crevice. And then it would echo whatever it was that I felt about myself. And so what I mean by that is if anything would have triggered me, it would come back and say, you know, boom, 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 you're not worthy. You're not worth it. And really, it was sending a thought to me to see if I agreed with it. And once there was a tacit agreement with it, that is how it began to, to gain consent into me. And so what I realized at an early age is that one of the tools we have in this form of spiritual warfare is to curse the curses to stop the advancements that these entities will try to, to get us to bow down to. And at that point in my life, when I stopped the consent, when I went to God and say, you know what, I no longer believe this about myself. You know, the, the, these emotions are not my emotions. That's when that entity no longer had authority over me. And therefore it's, it's, um, it's lingering and it has to go. <laughs> what, uh, what ultimately were they, or it, what, what was it trying to accomplish? Was it trying to accomplish a full-on possession? I do not know. I really don't. I know that there were no signs of possession. I always felt it as an exterior entity that would at times overshadow me. And if it wasn't overshadowing me, it was just in a corner. Or I'll tell you what, there, there was one night where it was, it was at nighttime, obviously, and it was in the wintertime. And I looked outside my window, and there was a shadow figure staring at me. And that was the most chilling manifestation I experienced. And the next day, I got up early for school, walked over to my window, and there were two footprints outside my window. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Yeah, right. Yeah, that wasn't a friend down the street. I know that for a fact. <laughs> right. Uh, and um, for people... Uh, who are experiencing a, a demonic uh, presence in their home, whether it's an oppression, a full-on possession, what, what are you able to do for them? Well, I, I specifically only deal with cases of that nature. Not to say I haven't had other cases that, that didn't include the demonic presence. But what I usually do is, and I, I, I go in, I don't ask questions until I'm done. So usually in my, in my gifting and calling, I will sit down, I will meditate, and I will gather influences and emotions that I feel prior, going, prior to going to the home itself. 
Then when I get into the home, I, I instruct them explicitly. Do not tell me anything. I do not want context. I do not want cases. I don't want to know manifestations. I do not want to know anything until I'm done going into every room of the house and getting information. And so I'll go through the house, every room. I will record all on an audio app I have on my phone. I'll record everything that I feel, everything. I'm talking smells, emotions. If I think I hear something, I'll record it. Because I found that a lot of that will play its hand in the next stage of my investigation. But once I, once I gather my inf information, I will go downstairs, we'll sit at the dinner table or the living room, and I will explain to them what I felt. And in most cases, if it's not the name of a deceased person that's in the home, it will be manifestations of the, the entity itself. And then at that point, we, we can do a many, many different things depending on the condition of the family. For instance, if there's drug addiction or alcoholism, if they're into witchcraft or if they've been playing around with the Ouija board. So I guess what I'm saying is that's what I do. That's my original approach. But the next step is predicated on what we're dealing with. So you do an investigation. You do um, some sort of a, a confirmation. And then I'm assuming there's a remediation. What does the remediation involve? It, like I said, it depends on what I'm dealing with, because I can try to close every door and, and be gifted at it, be called to do it. And yet if I leave, that door will stay open if the person is addicted to something that they refuse to let go of. Now, that's, that's the difference between a spirit that has consent to be in the home and a spirit that's lingering and loitering. If it has authority, I don't have, I can't do anything for that family. I mean, I can't. It doesn't matter. I, I mean, it, it, you can have Elijah that calls down fire, but if that spirit has consent within the hearts of someone in that family, it will not leave because it's sanctioned to be there. And so what I have to do is figure out, you know, do you, is there a history of witchcraft here? Is there, are there, have there been rituals done? Uh, what, you know, what was the house built upon? Is there addiction here? Is it alcoholism? Is there a spirit of suicide? What, and then you, you know, I've had cases where you have to even dig back into the ancestry, like two or three generations prior and say, okay, has anybody killed themselves? What, you know, and, and once we get those questions answered, you can really get a better idea of where to go with it. And uh, are these entities um, making people physically ill uh, as well as yeah. mentally, mentally ill? Yes, absolutely. I had a case where it was an incubus case and the wife could not convince the husband what, about what was going on. The husband would go to work. She would be in bed in the morning laying down and this entity would lay right next to her. And uh, finally, one night the wife just said, you know what? She threw her hands up and said, if, if you're going to experience it, you're going to experience it. I can't convince you that this is happening to me. So, you know, whatever happens, happens. I'm fed up with it. Well, that night the husband went to bed and while he was sleeping, this entity, it was, in his words, it balled up a fist and punched him square in the face. And the next day he had Bell's palsy, half of his face slumped down and he had to go to a doctor and the doctor said, have you had any physical altercations lately? So that's, that's one form that these entities can physically 
manifest in not not themselves only, but in terms of victimology here. The second form is when they can hurt somebody or attach to them. And there was what's called scarification. That's also an, an act of possession. And oftentimes these people will go through so much trauma that they cannot even articulate what they've been through. And so their body will begin to articulate and utter the words that their trauma could never say. And so they will physically wear the event on their flesh. They'll get sick. They'll get tired. They'll have diseases. And so that's, that's another aspect of this that just, it, it, you know, it's, it's a very dark and sinister subject. <laughs> uh, to what extent, and I know you're not, a, you're not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but in your experience, to what extent are demonic oppressions or, or uh, possessions masquerading as a mental illness? In, in many cases, you have a lot of disassociative aspects to it. The person loses themselves, and they'll mask themselves. These entities will, in, in many cases, uh, just psych- psychological defects or instances of depression that just comes upon a person. And, and that's why in my research, I include the aspect of grooming that these entities, these quote-unquote demonic entities, will perform. It will not, you know, like possession doesn't end and begin with possession. It begins with an entity through either through the act of being an incubus who will groom, they'll actually groom their victims. I mean, I've seen it. If it's not an incubus going into bed at night and whispering sweet nothings in the ear of their victims, it's something else. And there's very much a sexual aspect to this as well. And so it's, it's a, the gamut is far more transcendent than many demonologists would like to believe it is. What's the difference between an incubus and a succubus? An incubus is a male spirit or a spirit that appears as a male. Succubus is a female. Your first succubus, according to Jewish legend, is uh, Lilith. Or in Psalms 91, it's Pekad Lila. She was the first succubus. They said that it was out of Adam's male essence that she created, quote, demons. Now, the incubus and succubus is a very interesting phenomenon in itself because the research and data speaks of a male spirit who will capture the male essence from another, another man, turn into a man himself, a male spirit, a male himself, and go and implant it into a female. Hmm. And then, uh, and it just like the incubi, the succubus, the succubi, they will go and they will get eggs. And they'll go and try to, and this whole thing speaks, and I'll tell you what it is, it reeks of UFO abduction phenomena. Right, right. What we, what we mistakenly then refer to as the alien-humid hybrid program. 100%, brother, 100%. And sadly, I do believe that demonology has been limited to descriptions of malevolency. And we, we've tried to define this haunting and, and these demonic, by, de- by, by descriptions, and we're limited to a vocabulary that has sadly become nothing but dogmatism and religious pop culture. We have to be honest with the data. The data speaks far less of horns and hooves, far less, really honestly, far less than a, of, a, of a technological hybridization 
of humanity. No, none of it. It's literally necromancy. More of my conversation with demonologist Nathaniel Gillis when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I'd like to tell you about a health supplement everyone should take. Eighth Element from GetTheTea.com. Eighth Element is a combination of cordyceps specifically formulated to provide optimum health, endurance, and maximum performance for today's active lifestyle. Eighth Element from GetTheTea.com is a proprietary energy enhancement blend made from all natural ingredients and made specifically to increase actual energy and athletic performance. This combination has been found to stimulate the immune system and increase physical stamina and endurance. Eighth Element from GetTheTea.com is the ultimate cordyceps combination, the only one of its kind. Five strains of cordyceps are brought together from five different ecosystems to provide a superior performance edge, unlike any other performance product in the world. Build your stamina and increase your energy with 8th Element from GetTheTea.com. Use the code UNLIMITED and all your orders ship for free. Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Or something like that. I'll ask Richard later. Demonologist Nathaniel Gillis is here. So when we talk about the sexual nature, the sensual nature, incubus, succubus, demons, how do we reconcile that with the fact that they are discarnate? Very easily. We do not, okay, while we do have cases throughout history in Genesis 6, uh, Ludovica, uh, Maria, Maria Sinestri's work, Montague Summer's work, all of them, while we do have cases of these spirits wanting coition uh, with both men and women, we do not have proof that either, either of them actually experienced pleasure. We do not. Even if you get into R.E.L. Masters' work in the occult, even witches, there was never a pleasuring experience. They were either in pain or it was just completely pleasureless. And that was always the issue concerning Genesis 6 with the Nephilim is uh, how do these fallen angels, number one, how would they have the desire to want that kind of physical attachment? Why would they do that? Number two, how would they have the ability to make such things happen? They don't. And so that's why the sexual component of this is, is a means to an end. It was never about intimacy. It was always about creation, to beget something. And I, I would like to say this. When we get into the Nephilim legend, it's very difficult to assess what it is they're describing. Are you, you're familiar with the Nephilim, right? Oh, yes. I, I know yes. you are. Yes. <laughs> okay, okay. 
Okay, so yeah, we, we, we have to look at it as a vehicle of meaning. Throughout the Book of Enoch, the Book of Watchers, the, the Testament of the Reuben Testament, and the Apocalypse of John, all of them describe the same event. But in academia, we call it, there are what we, we call in academia, um, meaning-bearing inconsistencies in the midst of all of them. For instance, there are some authors, literally, not just not people who assess and give commentary on it, but actual people, the people who author these books, some of them say that it was the women's fault the angels did this. The others say it's the, the, the angels' fault. Then you have another guy who throws his hat in the ring and says, none of the above, these aren't angels, they're actually sons of Seth. So what, what do they all have in common? They have, a, they have in common entities that quote-unquote fell, which I think we also misunderstand, but they fell and they took under women and made under them wives. It wasn't until we get to the apocalypse of John, and I know a lot of people, oh, that's the Gnostic manuscripts. I don't care, because at least I know where, when it was written, and I know that at that time, at least they're looking at this and, and talking about it. But the apocalypse of John weaves a chilling narrative. He says that these quote-unquote beings it says, they appeared unto these women as though they were their husbands. <laughs> right, right. Well, the, right. I mean, the fallen angels, I, I've always sort of understood if, if you know, if we're talking about, let's say, Lucifer, he was uh, one of the cherubim, he guarded the throne room, he was, right. he was beautiful. Yes, but he didn't show up as someone else's husband. Correct. Right. And, and that... You know, yeah, yeah, you're right. And that, that was my issue because I, I grew up in the Christian tradition. And, you know, after reading the literature, I had to come to a conclusion. I forced myself. I said, Nathan, I said, I cannot disagree with the data. The data is historical precedent. It doesn't lie. These people experience this. Maybe I have to readjust some of these terms in my own mind and research it deeper. Now, also something that we have to pay attention to. In the Apocalypse of John, it says the following. It says, from the darkness, they begot children whose image, the physical image, was in the likeness of the, their spirit. Not, not the children's spirit, the watcher's spirit. That's terrifying. Right, right. What it, so what is... Right, because one would assume that the, the, the spirit would be rather hideous looking. Of, of course. Y yes, sir. Now, what does he mean from the darkness? What is he talking about? He's talking about Ecclesiastes 9.5. The dead know nothing, neither do they have a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. They sit in darkness. That's what we're referring to here. And they understood this in their own terms. For instance, that's why, that's why when these beings died, they became unclean spirits. And I'm not going to get the theology here, but I can't help. I have, to I have to define these terms for people. That unclean spirit throughout all of biblical antiquity, it always, every translation, especially in, in First Temple Judaism in the Old Testament, it was Ruah Tumah, T-U-M-A-H. That phrase is a direct reference to touching the deceased. Hmm. So, 
help me <laughs> help help me tie this all together then so okay. f- you're saying that the biblical account of demons is not correct or at least our understanding yes sir uh, of the the, the the biblical understanding of demons so so explain well, okay so genesis 6 well actually let's go to to, to genesis 1 at this particular time in history, we have a bib- biblical term called Shomer Nagia. It's a Hebrew term, Shomer Nagia, and it means to preserve the touch. Now, that aside, I want everyone to understand, and we need everyone to understand, that the legend of the Nephilim was was not, um, or rather, it did not originate in Hebrew thought. That came from Mesopotamia, from the Apkalu tradition, culture heroes. Now, that's the preface, what I'm about to say after that, but, but the Apkalu had three names. They were descriptions and titles of who they were. They were gardeners, they were guardians, and they were watchers. So when we go into the narrative, we land right into the garden in Genesis 1. Yahweh, God, tells Adam to preserve his touch, to shamar, guard the garden. He's a gardener. <laughs> right. And so watch this. Then he says, okay, now I'm not just, you're not just going to preserve the garden. You're going to preserve your touch. Shomer Nagia, do not touch that unclean thing, the tree. He's a gardener. So then we go to Genesis 6, and we have the watchers. Now, people assume that Genesis 6 defines what a watcher is. It doesn't. That's the issue that I've always had with this, this form of demonology, because that's not the only place in biblical history that Hebrew thought transposed the watcher legend. If it was, fine, but it's not. So we can't... We can't nestle all of our research into that one text. We have to expand our data sample. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Now, if we expand the data sample, we start to understand, first and foremost, what sin these watchers committed. Because right now, we have no sin. There's nothing in the Torah that prohibits coition between a mortal and an angel. Nothing. Matter of fact... Matter of fact, if you go to Sinistrari's work, people who encountered an incubus, when they would go and confess their sins to the priest, they couldn't even articulate what they experienced. They had nothing to confess because no, that experience they had, you know, it wasn't a part of their worldview. Right. So what is, what is it that happened? Okay, so Shomer Nagia. Now, the watcher in Genesis 6 is the same watcher that Hebrew tradition placed in their funerary rites. Their funerary rites would include, if someone died, the family would take care of the body, and then they would hire, or there would be someone that volunteered who would watch over the body. Hmm, okay. Now, <laughs> the family would, would leave, and now guys, anybody who has a biblical background, ask, your, ask yourself how many times the number seven has been mentioned in demonology. It's here as well. The family would leave and grieve for seven days. And while they're grieving, the watcher is put in charge of the deceased body. And watch this. 
He has to watch the body, but he can't touch it. He has to shomer, that's the word for watcher, by the way, shomer nagia. He has to preserve his touch. Right. Otherwise, he'd be unclean. Of course. Hence, unclean spirit. <laughs> mm. So, yeah, so what we have here is a narrative that is weaved for us. It strums a yarn of necromancy and necrophilia. And I hate to say that. I'm not the only one that says that. Yochanan ben Zakai in the first century, the rabbi, he points to it and says, listen, these unclean spirits are unclean because they were begotten from the deceased. Ah, now I got you. Okay. Interesting. They did so, preserve their touch. The watchers <laughs> who were, right, okay. I got you. Um, let me get into some more of the more, uh, some of the legends of demon possession. And okay. we've, things like levitation, superhuman strength. Does any of that mm -hmm. ring true? It does. I've seen it physically. I've watched it. You've watched, um, tell me about it. Okay. Well, I grew up in obviously the Christian tradition, but to be more specific, it was Pentecostalism. And while I don't hold, hold obviously to a lot of the uh, legalistic things, I, I do can tell you that I've, I've, I've seen exorcisms in the church. And in many cases, I mean, we had one guy who levitated off the floor. He had four or five guys trying to hold him down. There was one night where somebody coughed up a black substance onto a handkerchief, a white handkerchief. They folded the handkerchief up, opened it back up, and it was gone. So we've had cases in Pentecost, I mean, just in my local church that I, I used to go to 20 years ago. Yeah, we had cases where people would speak in a different language. Um, people who would cuss people out, levitate, slither like a snake, uh, regurgitate substances. And there, was all, there have been also cases where the spirit itself would compress the physical body of that individual until it pushed out oil out of their hands. Like not just oil, like I'm talking like dripping out of their hands. So, and that's just in my personal experience. And I mean, in my research, there's a lot of stuff in there as well. Uh you talk about these entities are playing by different rules because they're playing a different game. What does that yeah, mean? Absolutely. Well, aside from the benevolent entities that possess people, the non-incubus and succubus entities, the incubus, the, these guys, they're playing by a different rule because they're using us as currency. Even if you... Okay, even if you go into, and this is going to get crazy, even if you go into the legend of the Nephilim, your rabbis said that these entities had created children out of the blood of women's cycles. I know you probably have to edit that, but I'm telling you. No, it, no. Okay, because I, I, <laughs> it gets very chilling. And so what we're dealing with, even through human sacrifices, is that we as humans, mortals, in many cases, these entities have used either us or what we have in our bodies as currency. So if we can go even go into Father Sinestrari's work, these incubus entities, they didn't just coerce these women into coition. They would actually bring male substance, quote-unquote substance, with them into the actual act. 
And, and one of the issues that Sinistrari had with it, one of the issues I always had with Genesis 6, is where did they get these essences? <laughs> and Sinistrari and Montague Summers and your demonologists of not antiquity, but you know the older ones, they, they essentially said, listen, we have no other choice but to conclude that based upon the texture, the collar, and just some of the grave robberies they had back in the day, that these entities are getting their substances from the deceased. Right, right. And that's exactly right. We're right back in Genesis 6. What did they do? That was not an act of coition with the deceased. It was a ritual of possession and necrophilia. And so possession is, you know, a necromancy. It's not just raising the dead. It's putting another spirit in the body. That's what we're dealing with here. As in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Bam! What are we going to deal with? We're not dealing with hybrids in terms of just giants. We're dealing with entities that created their own social skin. They're not fallen in terms of angels. I'm not ranting here. But they're not fallen in terms of angels. They're fallen in terms of people who lived and died. He tells us that in Second uh, Samuel. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> you, you mentioned the Ouija board. Um, talk to me about how that works in terms of inviting unclean spirits. I liken it to opening up a door and saying, hey, is there a Ted out there? Or even just saying, hey, Ted, and every Ted that wants to be Ted ever self-identified as Ted or wanted to look like Ted, anything, show up and be Ted. And it might not be the Ted you want. And, the, and I'm not saying that the board itself is evil. I'm thinking about the intention of it. So, you know, I've, I've heard of many cases where people do that. They encounter something that says it's the person they want. And the next thing they know, they, they wake up to a shadow figure staring at them right in the face. That's why it's dangerous. What's the proper protocol if, if one plays, <laughs> and I use that term loosely, with a Ouija board? What's the proper protocol to prevent a spirit attachment? Uh, not to do it. In other words, there's no closing closing the uh, the ritual. There's no proper way. Once you open it up, you're susceptible. Yeah, usually they come to us in the form of questions, and we answer. That was that's the usual consent. But it, when we ask them a question, and not just them, but anybody, there. I mean, anybody could come forward and play the role of the person. I mean, even if you look at John D. and Edward Kelly, they were given the Anakic language, and before they knew it, they were wife swapping committing sin and then they realized that the apparition that edward kelly saw was not the beautiful handmaiden it was a wretched older lady it switched on them so yeah it's dangerous i would i don't i don't touch it <laughs> do these do, do these demons have have names i would say they do i don't think it's leviathan i don't think it's lucifer i don't think it's beelzebub I think, again, there are, there are roles that they will play. Uh, I know that I met a demon myself whose name was Doug. And again, not horns and hubs, but a malevolent being who had lived and died and was twice fold the child of hell. He actually possessed someone, this is a case I had, and actually murdered a person in the home. Yeah, I mean... So do they have names? Uh, if they're living people and have lived and died, I, yeah, yeah. And and what types of manifestations have you seen? Do they other aside from shadow people, which you mentioned? 
Mm-hmm. Well, scarification, 100%. And I tell a lot of people that, that you know, ask me questions, not even on radio shows or anything, just people I know personally. Uh, possession doesn't end and begin with possession. Uh, it begins with the grooming of them. And then once it possesses you, there's oftentimes what I call scarification. Scarification in my research was first authored uh, by the German anthropologist Fritz Kramer. Fritz Kramer had visited Haiti, noticed a man who was possessed by an ancestor who had scarred his flesh to the point where he didn't even look human. And uh, Fritz Kramer said that that was known, that scarification was known as that entity's social skin. And so that's why a lot of the most of the forms of suicide people will have and present while being possessed is the slitting of wrists, the, the cutting themselves. That's why it begins with cutting. It's always, it's always not just possession, but let me wear you as skin. That's what it's always been about. Hmm. Uh, a touchy subject, but serial killers, uh, are they possessed? I would believe so. I would believe so. Matter of fact, if you research a lot of them, even Dahmer, all of these guys, most of them, uh, they'll tell you they were sick. They would fight urges that were not their own. And I'm not saying that they weren't, some of them weren't mentally ill. I'm not saying that at all. But even in the case of the murder that I had, the, uh, the murderer, once I had went there and I want to say banished the spirit, I didn't do it. My, I worked with my angel and did that. But uh, once that entity had left, that possession of that person left as well to the point of the murderer. You're following me? So, so the possessed person was no longer possessed. It didn't, so the entity didn't just leave the house. It left the person as well to the point that I was at a restaurant one night and a lady sat next to me with her husband, asked me what I do. I told her, I told her about my last case. I didn't give her details. Turns out that this person I was speaking to was the little girl. That was the murderer. She was a girl. That was her social worker. And this, this girl had, did, had, had done such a turnaround personally that the social worker herself said, we had heard about you and what had happened. And you're exactly right. Once you went to the house, that entity left the house and her. So just... To, uh, to recap here, this was a, a, a little girl who had committed murder because she was possessed? Yes. How, how did she do yes, that? Sir. How old was she? Um, the, okay, so there were two of them. There was one who was 13. She actually lived in the house. The other one was 15. And they were friends. And um, one night, the 13-year-old opened the door, allegedly opened the door, literally opened the, 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 the house door and and the front door and the the 15 year old came in and I spoke to one of the victims. They said that she had a knife and scissors in her hands and there was a male voice coming out of her body and it would just cackle and laugh. And uh, I didn't know that until, like I said, I didn't know anything until we actually sat down. But yeah, it possessed her. Now see what's so fascinating about this is that it couldn't open its own door. It had to possess both of them so that one can open the door and the other one can bring a knife because the one who opened the door would not have brought the knife. The one who brought the knife could not open the door. So what it had done is it wore both of them as as skin, literally. It gathered its consciousness into one location 
at a time to, to fulfill whatever it wanted to fulfill. Once it was done, it stayed in that house. And so and the, that's, the, the 13 year old girl, the victim, uh, the 15 year old that was possessed after this, after this unclean spirit, this demon was banished through the help of your angel. What became of the 15 year old? Uh, they, they had said that the entity had left, that she had a hard time remembering even what happened. Did she go to prison? And I don't know. To be honest with you, I do not know. It's, it's that case was a year and a half ago, but I know that, um, I think they're going to try her as an adult, so I'm not real sure. But what it, what it did from my own, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask, what does this mean then for things like culpability? I think, again, I think that what we're dealing with is consent. I think that this entity literally manipulated these two people for consent because it couldn't be at two places at once. It, had, it needed somebody to open the front door. It needed somebody to, to accomplish what it could. And yet, and yet, when it was finished, they're done. Everything's fine with them. What happened to me? That's a classic possession case. I mean, if, if it... If, Anytime, even in Catholicism, these people hardly remember what happened. They get into a catatonic state. Next thing you know, bam, what happened? What did I do? What did I say? So not to say that other murderers aren't you know, evil people. That's not my point at all. I hope you know that. <laughs> but this was, um, it was interesting to me because it helped me learn how these entities will operate. Again, the 13-year-old had issues with suicide. The 15-year-old um, was, was bigger. She was a bigger person. So what happened was that entity wanted someone bigger than the 13 year old. So he used a 15 year old. But then again, like I said, he needed access to the house. So what does that mean for my research? What it means is, and it goes back to the debook legend of Judaism. Before you conform to it in possession, it will conform to you in grooming. Send you thoughts. Do you agree with me? Yes. So in the beginning, like I said, it will lay on you like a garment. It will groom you. It will fact find. It will send thoughts to you. And that, that at, the, at, first, at the first time you hear it, it doesn't sound like you. But the more consent you give to it, then when the possession happens, you cannot tell the difference between your thoughts and its thoughts that it's sending you. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. So then now it's not an apparition. It's Genesis 6. They begot children from the darkness who have the likeness of their spirit. What did it do? It literally created itself a skin and stepped into it. Is this for you a full-time job? I mean, is it is this type of activity now so prevalent in society that it's keeping you busy around the clock? No, I have a case about once a month. I uh, and most of them aren't even demonic. It's just uh, incubus or poltergeist. Now, my research is twenty-four-seven, literally. I, I read nonstop. And I, I do feel that, that this, this research is going to bleed into the unified field theory because, because I don't think that these entities are separate. I think that these aliens and quote-unquote demons, I think they're all the same. And I think that it's high, high time that my field in demonology does, is not limited to the lens of religious pop culture and dogmatism. 
that we humble ourselves and say, listen, maybe, maybe there's more to this. And I, I do believe there is. And are you available for consultation? And if so, how do people get a hold of you? I do case studies now. I, I used to do one-on-one consultations in terms of like uh, spiritual coaching. And that was, that was wonderful. And I wish I could have the time to do that more. Uh, but case studies in terms of if you are somebody in the field is doing research, just would like my opinion on anything. I don't charge anything. I, you know, it's, it's, it's research to me as well. So we can help each other. You can just, you know, hit me up on my website, njgillis.com. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram under the same name. Uh, so yeah, mostly case studies. It briefly, if you could, Nathaniel, tell me about your book, A Moment Called Man. What's that about? It is, it's not, okay. So I, I had a friend of mine who also grew up in church and he had an addiction to cocaine and he could never, ever beat it. And we lost him this September, to be two years ago. Uh, he had overdosed. And it was during that time of losing him that I went through a period of grieving. And in that period of grieving, I had a lot of revelations in terms of these entities. And uh, what more so, I wrote this to people who are fighting. The same thing that my buddy fought. To empaths who are medicating the gifting that should be manifested. To those who are hurting in unspeakable ways. I wrote a moment called Man to, to reach a withered hand to people, to help them, and to heal. And that's my book. And how do people get a copy of A Moment Called Man? It's on Amazon right now, tonight. It's on Amazon right now. And my second book that I'm writing as we speak, I was writing earlier actually, um, it's going to be on demonology and the link between UFO abduction and possession. And to say that it's chilling, it's terrifying. I mean, I do this a lot. I research all the time. And to me, it's terrifying. And at the same time, it will give us an ability to understand what's going on and to also know how to fight it. Last question. How do you protect yourself? Protect your thoughts. The, the first act of possession is self-abandonment. And, and that's it. Uh, not to say that you can't go somewhere and have an attachment, but possession is a whole different ballgame. And so that's what I would say. Protect yourself. If you believe in crosses, do the cross. If you do holy water, do holy water, whatever you believe in. That's what I've covered in my research. But at the same time, protect yourself. And, and really, yeah, that's it. Self-abandonment. That's, that's, that's what I've always found. Protect your thoughts. As we think, we speak. And as we speak, we act. Yes, sir. Yep. NJGillis.com. N j gillis g-i-l-l-i-s dot com nathaniel a real pleasure thank you for spending some time thank you sir i enjoyed it thoroughly thank you okay before i dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs i'll be back to tell you a little bit about an upcoming episode The discovery of carbon-60 is likely to be the most amazing chemistry discovery of the late 20th century. And my friends at C60Evo.com are the world's number one manufacturer of C60, the safe, 
consumable form of pure C60 is called ESS60, and the mighty Aphrodite and I take a tablespoon every morning. ESS60 is the C60 formulation used in the famous 2012 original Paris study that showed ESS60 doubled the lifespan of rats. ESS60 from c60evo.com is raw C60 that's been produced, certified, and guaranteed for safe human consumption. ESS60 from c60evo.com is a powerful molecule that acts as a nano antioxidant to attract, stabilize, and neutralize free radicals. It's also known to have 172 times the antioxidant power of vitamin C, 172 times, which may be why people are feeling healthier on C60. All I know is the mighty Aphrodite and I are sleeping great and we're both pain-free. To get your bottle of ESS60, go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the c60evo.com link. Use the code RS1SPEC to get 5% off. RS1 SPEC and get 5% off. It's time to start taking responsibility for your health. Time to support your immune system. Join the mighty Aphrodite and I. If you want more energy, mental clarity, and a great night's sleep, ESS60 from c60evo.com. Again, go to the episode notes and click on the c60evo.com link and use the promo code RS1SPEC to get 5% off. Coming up next time, historian, author, Dean Reuter takes a look at the post-pandemic world. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.